This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everyone, welcome to The Survival Show Podcast. I'm David, the founder of Ultimate Survival Tips and your host for today's show. Today I'm going to continue our Bug Out Boot Camp series with my guest co-host, Mr. Tyler White. Tyler served in many guide, training, intelligence, and recon capacities, both privately and in and with the U.S. military and several three-letter agencies. And I'm happy to have him back today to discuss how to cut half the weight out of your bug out bag and still have everything you need, urban camo techniques you can use to disguise your bug out bag and repel thieves, why you might really want to consider looking like you're homeless during an urban bug out, how to put together a virtually free poor man's bug out bag in a few hours, and a lot more. But before we get into all this great content, let me ask you a question. Do you love the informative and family-friendly survival, preparedness, and personal growth content that we share with you every week? If so, can you do me three solid favors right now? First, help me accomplish our goal of doubling our audience size in the next three months by one, sharing this, your family-friendly preparedness podcast with the people you care about. Two, go leave an honest five-star review and comment wherever you listen. And three, can you help me get the additional staff that I need so that I can have a life and build out our team so that we can continue to serve up podcasts, videos, and unique survival and preparedness gear you can't find anywhere else by going over to ultimatesurvivaltips.com and subscribing to my weekly survival emag newsletter. By doing so, you're going to get tips, tricks, training, and be the first to know about our new MSK1 knife and gear releases and giveaways. And while you're there, you can also grab the show notes for this podcast, including checklists and gear links, and pick up some of my survival and preparedness gear over at ultimatesurvivaltips.com. Now, to encourage you to help us out in this regard, I'm going to give you the biggest discount I've ever offered to our podcast listeners, and that's a full 25% off anything in our store, including my Made in the USA MSK1 and Pack one Survival Knives. As a thank you for your support, use code SURVIVALSHOW25 at checkout over at ultimatesurvivaltips.com. That's code SURVIVALSHOW25 for 25% off anything in our store for the next week at ultimatesurvivaltips.com. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support. All right, let's get into today's show. Right, Tyler White. Hey, you're back again. We're going to talk bug out again, right? Yeah. Long time no chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for guys, gals who did not hear our last podcast, maybe give us like a minute, two, maybe three of what we talked about last time and also weave in your story. I know you're like an artist when you talk, weave in your story into what we talked about last time. So people who don't know who you are can get kind of up to speed. 
that's a nice way to say that I ramble, but I have a point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we talked about EDC, which is everyday carry, bug out bags, military. I will recap real quick. I joined the military, the National Guard. I've been active and National Guard and military contractor for decades, plural. I've been in artillery, military intelligence, special forces unit. I'm a jump master. So I've done a lot of stuff. And then outside of that, I've done military contracting, Helmand, Afghanistan, which is a lot of people don't know, but it's the largest opium producing valley in the world. So not only is there terrorism, there's drugs and extortion and just a lot of a mess happening there. And I've worked for three letter agencies both inside and as federal law enforcement. So I've done a lot of stuff involving moving in and out of austere environments, protecting facilities, going to different locations, armed and unarmed, which is important. And that kind of brought us to EDCs. To nail down the EDC, you need to survive. Survival is don't die, right? So if we take the basic premise of you don't wanna die, the next question is what's gonna kill me first? Well, that depends, right? We come up with what's going to kill me first by using the rule of threes, which I won't deep dive into too much right at the moment. And then we mitigate those risks with EDC. Like you wear clothes when it's cold outside, so you don't freeze to death. You bring money to buy food, so you don't starve to death or run out of gas or whatever, right? So that's kind of the EDCs, the things that you keep on yourself at a base level. Or if you want to carry something heavier every day, the things that you carry on a heavy level, like a sling bag or a backpack or a penny pack or whatever, right? I'm not here to judge your, I can't think of the word. Carry preference. Yes. I was going to say uh, your fashion. I'm not here to, to judge your fashion. Because <laughs> you mentioned fanny pack. <laughs> yeah. I said fanny pack and I went, eh. But the reality is I see a lot of kids carrying fanny packs and I'm like, oh, we're going to pretend like those are fashionable again but they work, right? I see a lot of people carrying a fanny bag over their arms as a sling bag. And that's cool. You know, you get to keep a little street cred, I guess. So EDC is the stuff that you carry on you. You need fire, water, shelter, food, security, medical communications, and the ability to replenish all of those things indefinitely. Literally rewind what I just said and write it down. If you have a plan for all of those things, you're never going to have an issue. Fire includes actual fire it includes heating it includes the fire metabolically you use to keep your body warm because you ate food it's the thing you use to purify water clean water cook food make the cabin of your vehicle warm whatever that's fire water is self-explanatory you have to have water to stay alive you also have to have salt to go along with your water shelter is the clothes you're wearing the food you eat the vehicle you're in the house that you live in the shelter you make the Sleeping bag you should leave in your trunk if you drive anywhere in the winter, that's shelter. Food is food, and it's less important, although it keeps you from getting cranky. You can go for weeks without food, without dying. And I say that because it's the first thing people want and the last thing people need. Security, self-explanatory, firearms and training, training being the most important part of that sentence, are security. Security could be martial arts training. It could be knife training, something like that. Medical is a kit and the ability to use it, stop the bleed, that kind of thing. Communication is going to, clearly it's going to be everyone's cell phone. It might be a ham radio or a CB. It might be a text satellite device or satellite phone. 
just a way to call for help because you're not really in a problem. You're not in a pickle if you can call your buddy. And then the ability to replenish it. What I mean by that is your phone's great till the batteries are dead. Your Snickers is great till you run out. Your car heater's great till you run out of gas. So you have to have a plan because you have exactly X amount of minutes until you run out of food, heat, shelter, whatever those things are. And you need the ability to replenish them either with money or chopping a tree down and burning it or catching some fish with your hands, whatever it is. So that was in not very much of a nutshell, EDC, bug out bags, planning, and all of that stuff. Great. So why don't we just talk about a few things here and I'm going to throw out a list to you and you pick up wherever you want to go with it. Maybe I'll give you three things at a time. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about bug out plan. So know where you're going, know how you're going to get there, have alternative routes, pick up wherever you want. I would back that up and say, why are you bugging out? Ah, good. Okay. Okay. Because you can have a, you can have a plan, but like what risk are you mitigating? Right. My bug out plan is to go to grandma's cause I like cookies. Okay. That's great, but it has nothing to do with risk mitigation, right? So if your bug out plan, let's use travel for a second. I'm going to Australia later this year. When I go there, I don't have a lot of social contacts. I don't know where anything is. So what can I do to mitigate that risk? Well, I have a friend that teaches survival classes that lives north of Sydney. Awesome dude, Australian survival instructors. You guys should check him out, throwing a shameless plug for him. So I've got a local contact. I need a phone number for that local contact. I need some basic knowledge about what the structure of the city looks like. And let me explain why. I was in a Middle Eastern country traveling to Afghanistan. I got in a taxi. The taxi driver was supposed to take me to the other side of the airport. And he started going the opposite direction of the airport. That's a red flag. So I pulled out my GPS device and started tracking where we were going. And I said, if he doesn't turn right at this roundabout, because go straight leads out in the desert, I'm getting out of the vehicle. And I had a plan to break through the window, get out and go somewhere else. Fortunately, he turned right at the roundabout and brought me around to the other location. That seems a little paranoid, but knowing the signs and the red flags up front keep you from getting kidnapped or whatever. Columbia is a perfect example because you and I were both there. One briefing I received before going there was don't get in any taxis unless you know the name and picture of the person coming from your hotel because there are taxi drivers that are associated with gang members who will kidnap American citizens and give them to the FARC and leverage them for millions of dollars of money. And they'll be there for years. So in that case, the mitigation risk is being captured, being POW'd or kidnapped, right? So when you're in a foreign country, there's a bunch of risks that you're going to mitigate. What if a war starts while you're there? What if a coup happens? I have a friend that was in Peru when they had a little bit of an attempted government overthrow happened this last year. A lot of people don't even know happened. What do you do? Well, you have contacts of people that can help you. If you don't have those contacts, you know where the embassies are. You know where to go, right? So you have a plan to mitigate risk. When you're traveling to other countries, you have a plan. You get on Google Earth. You look at the, the city and say, oh, there's two main highways, one going north, one going south. If I get on that highway, I can walk to the embassy, right? You just have a little bit of knowledge other than, oh, I just flew in and now I don't know where anything is. So now I start doing research. Now I download the app that is full of governmental bugs out of my phone, right? No, plan before you leave your safe space 
on what is the place you're going to go. So we have bug out bags to plan against something. So if I reel it in a little bit, if I'm planning something, it's because I'm planning against something. I'm planning against a storm that might make me stranded, a war that might start, a train that might dump this kind of chemical, a explosion, an active shooter, whatever it is. And we kind of talked about this in the last podcast. If you have a plan to mitigate the worst man-made and the worst natural environmental disasters in your area, all of the smaller, easier stuff you will have a plan for, right? So if I live in Kansas, you know, probably hurricanes a big issue. So I need to know where the hurricane shelters are. I need to know where the radio stations are to tell me when they're coming. I need early warning, just basic local knowledge, right? Maybe if like when you and I went to the Colombian jungle, hurricanes aren't exactly an issue in the Colombian jungle. Snakes might kill you though. And we need to know what snakes are going to kill you, which frogs are going to kill you. And we need to go with a guide that can say, Hey, you can eat this plant, but that one will kill you. Right? So you need social networking. You need an extension of your tribe. You need basic knowledge and just what I would call basic operational knowledge of your given environment, instead of being in that vacation mode where, Oh, I don't know where I'm at or where I'm going or where I parked. I'm just here having fun. Well, you are ripe for the picking for someone that wants to commit a criminal act against you. Excellent. All right. So you covered a couple of these other things too. take a paper map. That's essentially what you're saying. Basic operational knowledge of your location in relation to other places that you might need to traverse to. Well, or even study the location before you go. When I went to yes. the Colombian jungle, I looked at the whole thing on Google earth and said, if something goes wrong, what can I do? And I had a plan before I got there. A paper map is just an extra piece of information. And you're also going to need to know how to find your direction. So a compass, right? Just basic stuff. It's not something that's, yes, all phones have a compass, but not all phones stay alive for a week straight or after an EMP. So if that goes down, how are you going to mitigate that risk? Okay, get a little wrist compass. Now you at least know bearings and where north is. So you don't get spun around and think you're walking west when you're walking east. That can be a massive issue if you're north of the Brooks Range in Alaska because you think you're walking home because it's downhill, but north of the Brooks Range, downhill goes send you to the Arctic, and there's literally nobody up there. Yep. All right, let's just talk about a couple of these other things. Practice bug out and your trip so you have a plan. Where are you going to go? Why are you going to go? What risks are you mitigating? And then I've got fitness on here. We briefly, briefly talked about that at the end of the last podcast and mindset. Pick up where you want, bro. So fitness, I shouldn't have to tell anyone how important fitness is. Anyone that's ever been in a fight and been winded in a few seconds knows how important fitness is. Anyone that's ever had to walk after their car broke down knows how important fitness is, right? I grew up in southeastern Idaho, and it was unheard of for someone to have a car that didn't have a trunk kit. It was just what you did. Mm -hmm. And it had Mm -hmm. a candle. It had food. It had water. It had very warm sleeping bags. Back then we had CBs, right? I'm that old. You would have a tire changing kit, chains, just basic stuff. So, hey, if the blizzard moves in and you got to spend the night in a snowdrift, you're not going to die. But fitness gives you the ability to travel and move distances to locations that other people can't because they're not capable of walking two or three miles or they don't have the right clothes to do it, right? So fitness is massive. Soldiers put a huge emphasis on fitness because 
if you can outrun the guys that are shooting at you 300 meters away, you're good. If you can't, they kill you, right? If you can run out, grab your homie and throw him on your shoulders and bring him back, he lives. If you can't, he dies. So there's a myriad of reasons, but there's just no excuse for 80 to 90, maybe even 95% of the population for not even being able to run for three miles without stopping. It's just, there's no reason for it. There are some people I get, because I know I'm going to blow up the comment section, if you will. There's some people that can't do that and they're never going to be able to do that because they're wheelchair bound or whatever, right? Or they've got medication. Okay, you have an excuse, but don't make it an excuse to not be able to ride a bike or not be able to get an electric vehicle that moves you. Like mitigate that plan, right? So if you've got something that shuts you down, have a plan for it. But in the meantime, you need to be physically fit. And if you want to practice this stuff, go get that bug out kit that you made that weighs 250 pounds and walk to the next city and tell me how far you get before you turn around and come home. I know the one time I tried to run away from home as a kid, I made it to the edge of the yard and realized how dark it was and said, I am not equipped for this and come back. <laughs> right. And I genuinely think a lot of people who have never tried a legit long distance rock march aren't going to get more than a mile and a half to two miles before they start questioning their life decisions. So let's key in on that fitness aspect and maybe let's just talk about this whole bug out bag and packs thing. I have done some research and I think this number has probably dropped quite a bit. So the average person can carry on their back a mile or two, maybe three, 15% of their weight max on foot. That's probably a good standard, but I know a lot of people that are so overweight that that number just logarithmically shuts them down, right? Right. So what I use is when I used to fight wildland forest fires, we needed to be able to cover distance with a 35-pound pack. And we would run with a 35-pound pack. I can't even remember the distance. It was like a mile and a half. You needed to be able to just run a mile and a half in this, what I would call a real low military time. And... I remember the first time I tried it and it smoked me, right? And at the time I was running eight miles a morning pretty regularly without effort. And then I put that 35 pound pack on and it just about smashed me. So another base of standard is there's a guy named George Washington Sears. His pen name was Nessimuk and he was a field and stream writer in the late 1800s, meaning he was writing back when everyone was using skillets and long fire cooking tools and heavy you know, lever action guns. It was old Western, old timey, heavy equipment. So many people call him the father of ultralight because he had some sort of childhood sickness that made his back messed up and made him short. He was able to get, supposedly he had a birch canoe that was under 35 pounds and his entire kit was under 35 pounds because he did stuff like he had a double bladed ax, a dull side for skinning and a sharp side for chopping wood so that he only had one ax. He had one really long curved blade so that he could process animal. And then he had a linen sack that he would fill with bushes so he had a pillow, right? So he had a bunch of multi-use things. And even then, back when everything was super heavy, he maxed out at 35 pounds in his total kit plus a 35-pound canoe. So he was only 70 total pounds, including canoe, with all of the kit that he was carrying. With that in mind, if you're over 35 pounds in a bug out, it's too heavy. You need to stop. Military soldiers will carry hundreds of pounds. However, they will spend 
months and months and years getting up to that level. And almost all of them retire with stress fractures and crushed mm -hmm. spine and jacked up backs. You know, the surest sign that you have a former action guy is they can't hear and they've got a back problem. So let's be realistic. If it's over 25 to 35 pounds, it's too heavy. And if you need to carry more of that kit, you need an electric or gas powered vehicle to move it. And the reality is you don't need kit that weighs more than that. If you have knowledge and a way to mitigate that weight. Now I'm going to go down the rabbit hole again. If you're in the middle of the winter and you want to carry more weight, go for it. Cause you can slide it across the ground. If you're in the middle of the summer, why are you carrying that much weight? You don't need that much insulation, dial it back. So that's kind of where I would look at that. Get fit, but don't take the kit unless you need it. So we talk a lot about mindset, skills, tactics, and gear here and supplies. And we approach it in that order. And the reason is because we tend to love gear. Everybody loves gear, right? I'm a gear whore, I admit it. Yeah. I mean, gear is fascinating. Gear is a force multiplier. And so like, you know, a hammer is better than your hand. A hammer is better than a rock. A firearm is better than... So you have than... to carry it for 20 miles. <laughs> right, right. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So we tend to, especially for new folks, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks newer to preparedness. We get new people all the time listening to the podcast here. And our first inclination, because one, we're drawn to gear... Too, because we live in kind of a marketing-oriented society where all these gizmos and gadgets are presented to us. And three, because it's a force multiplier. And if you know how to use a small amount of appropriate gear, it can do a lot for you, right? But what people often leave out is this aspect of mindset, right? In special forces, you're not making it past any kind of qualifying if you don't have a survivor's mindset, right? Then you've got or skills. In any military branch. Right. The reality right. is in a really hard Boy Scout camping trip, you're not going to make it unless <laughs> right. you have the mindset. <laughs> I'm not going to give up. On a walk to the end of your block with a 15 or 25 pound pack that you have never utilized before or new hiking boots. You might need a survivor's mindset. <laughs> you might need a survivor's mindset, depending on whether you've done that a lot or not. And then we have skills, right? So skills, you talked about this a lot in the first podcast, and you've mentioned it here even, knowing a core set of skills, like how to start a fire. I have a story from an event I went to in New York City, and it was a black tie event. I actually did not own a suit, <laughs> and, and uh, I bought one for this particular event. I was kind of hoping you had a t-shirt with a black tie on it, but it's okay. <laughs> so I went to this event. And it happened to be in November in New York City, and it was cold. And this beautiful location was right on the river. And so the folks who ran the event venue were trying to start a fire in a fire pit that looked like last time it was used was maybe like 10 years ago. And they were there with lighters and matches trying to light logs, right? So <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> like literally, they just needed some help. Like paper wasn't doing it. They needed to have some basic skill on how to start a fire, right? Even in New York City. Everyone can start a fire. Nobody can keep it running because they don't understand kindling. Right, right. So you have mindset, you have skills, you have tactics. Tactics are 
incredibly important. How do we utilize the people and resources around us in a strategic way to accomplish our mission? And then we get to gear, right? You can do a lot with mindset. You can do a ton with skills, utilizing what you have in your environment already or around you or tools that you already have, tactics, and then we get to gear. So the reason I'm saying this is because we want to load up these packs. I'm putting myself in this category too, like 20, 25 years ago. I didn't know what to carry, so I carried everything. And 25 years ago, I was a lot stronger, right? And I could carry it, although painful. <laughs> the whole point is that gear is great and fine, but every piece of gear costs you something. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. And like I say to people who want to load up their pack and they're just bound and determined, I'm going to do this 12 mile hike up in the mountains of North Central Pennsylvania with this 35 pound pack because I need to take my cheese with me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I just sometimes I think the best thing is like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and literally, I've had situations where at trainings or whatever, People stop literally within the first five minutes and say, I can't do this. Like, yeah, this is just dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Then we have a teaching moment and it's like, okay, you don't need this. You don't need it. But I need that. But hey, ounces are pounds, pounds are pain. That's what I always say. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what you're talking about here is one, keep your kit lean and mean. And we're going to talk about exactly how to do that. Two, you can't carry as much as you think you can if you don't do this on a regular basis. Is that accurate? Even team guys, Special Forces Green Braves in Afghanistan, when they have a quick op, which would be something like a Chinook lands at this location, they move two and a half miles to that location, they move five miles to another location, will only carry an Israeli rig and an M4 and a radio. Now, for soldiers, that's blasphemy and a complete sin. So if you have mounted ops, you're gonna have the turtle shell armor, right? It has the neck flap resistant pieces, the crotch piece, all of the kit and all of the 300 rounds minimum ammunition, IFAC, batteries, radios, all that stuff. But you're also in a vehicle and all you're doing is hopping outside of that vehicle, doing some shooting, maybe a little bit of sprinting. But when you get team guys that are going to go in at nighttime, they're gonna, cover a big distance, they're going to do a hit where they take out a bad guy on HVT, and then they have to run out, it is more valuable for them to move fast than it is for them to wear body armor in a lot of instances. So they will just carry an Israeli rig. Those that don't know, it's a chest rig with ammunition in it. Sometimes there's some medical and a radio on it. That's it. There's no body armor, nothing else. And sometimes they may only carry four, three or four magazines, which if you were in the infantry, you know, seven's your basic combat level. And again, they do that because they need to be able to access it. They need the very basic of what they need, plus the ability to run for five miles to get away from the location so they can get back in the helicopter and get out of there. So we used to have these big bags. I won't say what they were called, but we would fold them open and they would be like your lightweight kit. Maybe let's say your number one guy kit and then your motor vehicle kit, right? You'd have three or four different sets of body armor inside of these bags that you can choose from depending upon the mission. When I was associated with these guys, I was primarily doing civilian clothing missions. So a lot of the stuff we did was very lightweight, 
but maybe we had a overly armed dude sitting in the back seat. So modularity is more the answer to this problem than tons of kit. We had the kit, we had all the kit in the world. We just didn't take all the kit in the world because we saw how hard it was to run with all the kit in the world. So I think this boils down to a few things that you've mentioned before. You need to know what you're trying to mitigate. You need to know your mission. You need to have some sort of a plan. And it's really important. Maybe this is what we're actually talking about right now. You need to know your current limitations today. And you need to figure out a solution to get yourself from a dangerous place to a safe place in the fastest, safest possible way that you can, right? So for you, in a lot of cases, if it's possible where I'm at, this would probably be possible. Bugging out by vehicle is probably going to be a excellent solution where I'm at. That's always plan A. Yeah, that's always going to be plan A because you're surrounding yourself with essentially an armored vehicle. You're moving at some sort of a speed that makes you a harder target, all those sorts of things. But if you have to actually leave your vehicle or leave something that gives you cover and concealment, then you've got a whole nother set of issues that you need to deal with. So that gets me back to when do we actually leave our homes, leave our current safe space? When it becomes unsustainable to stay any longer. Yes. Yes. I know that's a quick answer, but here's the problem. We teach the rule of threes because people will say, how do I do survival? Well, you don't die. Okay. Well, how do I keep from dying? Well, it depends. Are you in Antarctica? Are you in the jungle? Are you in a war zone? Because the answer to how do I don't die changes. So when your environment or your location becomes unsustainable to stay there any further, you bug out, you go somewhere else. So my home right now is heated. It's snowing outside and it's cold. If the power goes out, I can throw firewood in the stove and I can stay here until I run out of firewood. If an earthquake happens and my building has fallen over, well, it's time to bug out, right? If a riot comes through here and people are shooting at the front of my building, it's time to shoot back and then bug out, right? It just depends on your situation. If you're in a vehicle that gets stuck in a traffic jam and an EMP happens and now no vehicles are running and your car is not going to turn back on, it's time to bug out. You're getting shot out, time to bug out. So the quickest answer, when do I bug out? When it becomes no longer sustainable for you to stay in this exact location is when you bug out. Now, what might cause that, you need to have a little bit of playing the what if game. What if this happens? Well, I'll do that. What if this happens? Well, I'll do that. And knowing what you're going to do is going to help you plan against the what ifs within pragmatic reality, right? We're not worried about the alien invasion so much as we are maybe an earthquake. So what if an earthquake happens? Well, then I'll go to grandma's house. If that doesn't work, well, I got another friend in another city. And what's it going to take to get to those locations? Well, I'm going to need cash, gas. I'm going to need a half tank to a full tank. I'm going to need extra fuel, whatever it is, right? Make your plan so that when life throws the curveball at you, you just automatically go into plan mode. Well, I've already decided I'm going to do the following four items. Go to those items. Now you're in a different location. When the dust settles, you can come back and clean up the mess. Good. We're kind of spattering randomly on some things, but I think we're hitting back on really important points. You had discussed in the last podcast, essentially a three or four tier plan. Some people call it a pace plan. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, so the military has this thing called a PACE plan. Let's just use a PACE communications plan, primary alternative contingency and emergency. Let's say the primary plan is I'm going to use my cell phone. The alternative plan is I'm going to use voice over internet protocol on the internet if the cell phone goes down. Contingency plan might be I'm going to use your cell phone. Emergency plan might be I'm going to pull out my Garmin Mini and I'm going to send a text on the satellite device. In the military, it might be my primary is the intercom system on my MRAP. Alternative might be Harris or Invader or something, which is a radio to communicate with encryption to other vehicles. Contingency might be Roshan, which is a local cell phone company. And emergency might be some encrypted other device, a radio system or satellite system or something. So you just basically say, this is what we're going to do. And if it fails, we're going to do that. That's the alternative. And if both of those crap out, we're going to use this third thing. And if an emergency happens, we're going to do this, right? Pace plan. And that can be applied to, if an earthquake happens, we're all going to meet at your mom's house. And if your mom's house is smashed, we're all going to meet at grandma's. And if there's an emergency, you're all going to log on to Facebook and leave a message and tell me where your location is. And we'll get together after that. Right. And I'm literally making this up as I go along. What you do doesn't matter as much as everyone's on the same sheet of paper. And even special operations teams struggle with getting communication to function properly. So. If you think that you're going to just do this and everybody's going to be on the same sheet of paper without practicing, you are sorely mistaken. So make sure that if you're going to have a pace plan for communication or meetup or whatever, you go do it and you practice it and you make sure everyone does it individually, repeats it back to you individually. So there's no chance of failure and then still have a plan for when it fails. That's essentially the pace plan. Excellent. All right. Let's get into some actual gear. I like gear. Yeah. <laughs> <Gear's good. laughs> oh really <laughs> the irony is i love gear that's why i got into making youtube content and stuff and all my youtube content is me in the desert without any gear so yeah it happens okay let's talk about backpacks first okay we've already talked about the idea that if you're thinking that you're going to pack for any distance anything more than 20 25 pounds that's probably going to be an issue i would say a Fit man, 35 pounds max. Can we pack more? Yeah. Yes. Are we getting it? No. Let's talk about that real quick. So the AT, you know what the AT is, right? Yep. Appalachian Trail. Yep. Yes. People try to hike the AT. There is a store about, I don't know how far, two days, three days max into the AT. Maybe even a day, day and a half into the AT, near the start point. The only thing that they do is take your heavy junk, get rid of it, and sell you new junk. And they make an entire living off of this store because people will show up with big, heavy rucksack. Now, why are rucksacks heavy? Because you need to be able to throw them out of a helicopter into a lake, jump out of the helicopter, land on that rucksack, swim to the edge of the river, drag it down a hill, you know, behind your drag bag as a sniper, like beat the ever-living crap out of it. You don't need that when you're hiking the AT, right? You don't need a machete. You don't need big, heavy things. So people, they're going to hike for six months straight. Right in the beginning, they get all these heavy things. And after a couple of days, they're like, you know what? This is really dumb. And then they come to the store and all it has is ultralight gear. And they've got like a 
a bin of this stuff where they get rid of it. I can't remember what they do. They sell it or they just give it away or something. And people buy these ultralight bags. So with that in mind, I've lived out of a rolling duffel bag for a year and a half straight in Afghanistan. And the way I did that is because I had a lot of ultralight gear. All of my running equipment was ultralight, which means like my wind stopping Patagonia jacket that I used, I could fold up into a little, let's call it coin purse size bag and stick it in my pocket. I could do the same thing with my wool hat and my face mask and my gloves and all that stuff. So all my running and PT gear was ultralight. The backpack I used was ultralight because that way I can put this really lightweight bag inside of my military grade duffel bag that needed to be military grade because it was going to go through multiple airplanes and conveyor belts. I drug that thing across rocks. If anyone's been to Afghanistan, the rocks are huge. I tore up an REI bag, got rid of it. The next time I went to Afghanistan, I bought this tactical tailor rolling duffel bag. I broke it once. They immediately replaced it without cost. Like if I'm going to support long-term travel, get one of those bags. So ultralight, when I take people out on the desert for a week and we're doing the no gear bag or no gear trips with holiday with friends, the rescue bag is an ultimate direction backpack that Matt Graham suggested that I get. And he was spot on the money with this thing. And I will put a ultralight seek outside shelter inside of it. I will put a mm, mm -hmm. uh, big old fat black beard fire starting rope and a lighter or two. I'll put a drone in there. And I do that because we found lost people with drones really quick. So I'll have really, really lightweight gear, a knife, water, a little bit of food, some shelter and snacks and a Garmin mini that can text out satellite device and then a battery to recharge my phone. Because the most important thing is calling for help. The next most important thing is keeping people stabilized. There's also a med kit in there until someone can come back. So I'm a big fan of ultralight gear when you're going to use it. It's more expensive and it will wear out faster. But understanding what needs to be durable versus what needs to be ultralight is key. Your sleeping bag probably needs to be closer to durable. Your backpack probably needs to be closer to ultralight. I've got a seek outside ultralight backpack that I've been using for years. That's amazing. I've got some of their tents and I use them when I go by myself. But when I go up and teach classes, like I ran a winter survival class about three weeks ago and we had a really big, heavy bare bones tent and a military Arctic tent up there, the 1952 Arctic tent. And it's super heavy because it's a semi-permanent shelter and I can bring a snowmobile up there to pack it up. But anything that's going on my person or on my back, I'm going to find the lightest while still robust product I can. And that's what I'm going to use. That's good. People don't realize this because oftentimes, I mean, you can find the weight of packs and things online if you're going to go online and buy them. But your average like tactical, you know, heavy Kondura nylon pack is going to cost you five pounds out of the gate. I've got a couple of packs here that that cost me you know, 10, 12 pounds out of the gate. Yeah, they're great packs. They're made for porting elk out from the woods. They're made for military operations, but you're paying a pretty heavy price for that pack, not only in dollars, but also in the weight that you can actually carry. So this is a really good point. 
Yeah, I'm trying to look real quick. So I just Googled a tactical tailor malice pack, which is pretty representative of a backpack. This is 3.4 pounds. I don't think my Google has given me good data on it. And then I'm looking at the Seek Outside Ultralight backpack. This is 57 ounces. So way, way lighter, but the cost is just incredible. Now, again, the reason a tactical tailor or gray ghost or whatever military rucksack is heavy is because like I have strapped Alice packs on the side of armored personnel carriers and driven through the woods with them. Like you're not going to do that to an ultralight bag. It's going to rip it to pieces. I have flipped them upside down on my legs, jumped out of a C-130, released them on what's called a Velcro zip line, watched them hit the dirt at a really high rate of speed because military parachutes you come in a lot hotter and then landed and then drug it across the dirt over to me and threw it in my back so they need to be able to handle military grade abuse i've used them as a weapons rest i've just done a bunch of really hardcore no-no to it but they're substantially heavier than these other bags these other bags i use them like my seek outside backpack or my ultimate direction backpack i use them constantly i use them every summer now I have to pack them right because there's not a lot of back padding on them. So I have to put the sleeping bag up against my spine because there's no padding there. So you have to know how to use them right. I can run with them. Like when you run with a military backpack, if it's not strapped down tight, it is just jackhammering your spine. If you run with a seek outside bag and an ultralight setup, I can run all day with it. As long as it's tight and it doesn't swing, it feels almost like I've got a tightly strapped sleeping bag on my back and that's it. So it's a nothing burger. These big military grade bags are made to handle military grade abuse. And if that's what you need, get it, but do the PT or you're not going to carry it. Cause you may have, you know, five pounds just in your backpack. Now you've got an extra couple of pounds in your sleeping bag and a lot more weight in your tent and a lot more weight in whatever, before you know you're over your limit and you haven't got all the kit that you need. Or if you just use ultralight gear one, it doesn't take as much space. Two, it looks civilian appropriate if we're talking about urban bug outs. And three, it just doesn't weigh as much. My only thing I don't like about ultralight gear is it is expensive. You spend a lot of money to get into it, but it's worth it when you do fast packing. The main reason I like ultralight gear is fast packing. And that's basically, I'm going to go for five days and I'm going to run from wake up until noon. And then I'm going to camp and then run from wake up till noon and then camp. You might cover 15 to 20 miles every single day, depending on the terrain. And if you don't have a pack that is tight to your body, that is ultralight, you're not going to last through your whole trip. It's not going to happen. And the other thing that people often forget about is now strap on three liters of water, right? Yeah. Water is about <laughs> eight pounds a gallon. So what I do with that, I talked earlier, I don't know if it was in this podcast, the other one, but I talked about my clean canteen, a 64 milliliter is a half a gallon clean canteen, single wall canteen that I can carry half a gallon. What I will do on those is I will put them right against the back of my hip and I'll wrap them up in some primitive cloth and make it extremely tight. Like as tight as it will go until the cloth starts to stretch. So there's no pounding and no slapping. And then above that, I'll use the ultimate direction pack and anything else that needs to go in there will go in there. And anything I need access to really quick will be on the front. I've got some pretty big front shoulder strap pockets like a running pack does. And then the big stuff in the back is just the stuff that I shouldn't need access to. But 
the actives of nailing it down to my hip bones keeps that water from basically slamming me. Also, whatever water carrying device you've got, fill it all the way to the top. You don't want any sloshing or any slapping because that, let's call it hydrostatic impact builds up. You'll feel it. That's one of the quiet rules for the military is nothing sloshes so you don't make noises. One of the impact rules is nothing sloshes so it's not like a jackhammer pounding on your spine. Right. And always remember the best place to carry water is in your stomach. Yeah. That's the first place that should be there for sure. You want to camel up. You should definitely load up as much water as you can put in your stomach before you load your canteens up. That way you can lose weight by peeing and be hydrated in the process. Yep. So let me just ask you a question. So the one pack, I'm not familiar with this. Did you say it's called the ultimate direction pack? I think it's called ultimate direction. I can, um, you can one direction. Okay. Ultimate direction. Yep. It's called ultimate direction. So ultimate direction makes what I'm going to call a running camelback. I've got a couple of them. They're amazing. When I was running in Hillman, it'd be 120 degrees and I would easily pound through a gallon and a half on a seven mile run. So I would camel up my belly as much as possible. And then I would load up the back and the front of the ultimate direction pack and then go for runs. Ultimate direction makes these fast packs. They're called fast pack forties. So I'm not sure the one that I like the most. I want to say it's a 30 something. It's basically a ultralight sack on the back with a running strap on the front that gives you the ability to just move fast. It would be a good jungle bag too. And that's actually one thing that I'll do that I picked up from the jungle is anything that goes on the inside of my ultimate direction pack. I'll put in a lightweight waterproof bag so that if I go in the drink, my tomorrow clothes are still dry because there's something really important about staying dry when you're in the backcountry. I don't care where you're at. It's always cold in the nighttime. So being able to put dry clothing on at nighttime is just very, very key. And one way to do that is have a waterproof liner that goes down your bag to keep your sleeping bag and your clothes for tomorrow dry. So real quick, just covering some styles of backpack. Now we've got a traditional backpack. I think in the last podcast you mentioned, you know, just as far as like everyday carry, like a fanny pack, you've got sling bags, you've got duffels, and some people put their bug out gear in a tote, which is not a bad idea. And I'm considering it putting my bug out bag in a tote. So I have an EDC sling bag. Okay. My sling bag is for EDC. Like I've got what I wear on me, which is usually a pistol, ammo, watch, knife, phone, keys, basic stuff, right? And then if I want to carry snacks or a battery for the phone or extra ammunition or a flashlight or a medical kit, I have a sling bag that looks like an REI bag. Tactical Taylor used to make them, and I think they were called the Covert Sling Bag. I don't know if they make them anymore. I do have a bigger version of it from Vertex, I think is the name of the company. And I can stick a folded 10 inch SBR inside of that one. That's why I have it. I've got a 22 that I like to take hunting and it's got a suppressor on it. So it's a Mark four with a suppressor and a light. It takes up some space. It's almost as big as a backpack, but it's a sling bag. And the reason that I like a sling bag is because it's the cop in me. One, you got to take a backpack off to get it to its contents. You don't have to do that with a sling bag. And two, it's harder to get a sling bag off of a person than it is to get a backpack off of a person. So I like the fact that it's more attached to me and it's harder to steal the contents of it, which would be a pistol. And I like the fact that I can just slide it to the front of me and it's basically like body armor that I'm used to using in the past. So all my kits right there in front of me, 
with a little drop down shelf, right? I can see everything I need right in front of me without taking it off. So I'm a fan of sling bags because from a utilitarian perspective, they just work. That's a really good point. A few years ago, I put together a 14 pound bug out bag video, which I don't know, it might have 500,000 views or more at this particular point. But I agree with you. Sling bags rock. And I know currently, I think all the sling bags I have are Maxpedition. They make various different sizes. And they also make them with kind of a padded soft pouch if you want to put your firearm in there. So I think they might be under like the prepared citizen line or something like that. I've got a couple of those too. They're great. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. When you're moving or running with a sling bag, they can tend to bounce, although you can stabilize them with your hand. But I know the Maxpedition ones actually have a strap that goes around your waist that attaches to the bag and stabilizes it if you have to move quicker. Yeah, the Tactical Tailor bag I use has one of those as well. Yep. It's either Tactical Tailor or Great Ghost that makes it. I wish you knew off the top of my head, but they're both sister companies. Cool. So just as we talk through this gear, as much as I can remember, and we can go back and kind of discern from our conversation, I will put links to the gear in the show notes for this podcast over at ultimatesurvivaltips.com. Just click the podcast tabs and the show notes tab. Okay, so we're talking styles. We've talked backpacks pretty well. I'm also carrying for my heavy EDC, which in a lot of cases would be my go bag, a Maxpedition backpack. Let's talk about something that's really important and missed. We talked about some styles, but we did not talk about specifically maybe three main points. We talked a bit about size. We talked a bit about style, but we didn't talk about the impression others get when they look at it, which would be a combination of size, style, and color. For instance, if you're in an urban situation and most people who carry packs are carrying kind of like executive or just non-tactical looking packs, you're really going to stand out. And you're especially going to stand out if you've got big molly pouches attached to the outside and your pack is twice the size of anybody else's pack, right? So one thing you can do, and we're going to get into law enforcement and military urban sniper tradecraft. One or two real simple solutions for that. If you've got your nice kit and you don't want it to be spotted, get some trashy looking Jansport that you got from a secondhand DI or someplace like that and throw your bag inside of that, right? So if you have some nice kit that you're worried about, have some urban camouflage that looks like garbage that you put it in. As an example, if you want to move through an urban environment with a long gun because you're a sniper, you just have some really gross looking clothes that you throw over the outside of your kit, whatever you're using. You put your long arm inside of a bunch of garbage in a shopping cart and you roll out, right? So one of the best things to do is either look like a local student or look like a homeless person. And that doesn't mean you don't have to have nice kit. It just means that the kit that you have needs to be inside of something like a garbage bag or inside of an old beat up Jansport bag or something like that. And then when you get out of that environment, you can take that Jansport bag, roll it up and stick it inside of your nice backpack and drive on. So just have a plan. A lot of times too, a lot of people think that you have to look urban in an urban environment, but there's a lot of plants there too. So just having a basic sniper veil or a basic piece of something to break up the outline and then lying in the bushes in front of a building can be enough to make you hidden. So have a plan where you mask the outline and mask the structure and mask the color of the things that you're getting. 
And also, if you're going to use a nice quality backpack for something like this, get camouflage street appropriate colors. Here's what I mean by that. Military camouflage looks like military camouflage, but skater camouflage that's kind of military camouflage also is camouflage, but doesn't look military. It looks skater or it looks college, right? Another thing you can do is get OD green. OD green is old school camouflage that people don't use anymore. So it just looks like an OD green backpack, but it's the color of the bushes as opposed to bright fluorescent orange or multicolored whatever else, right? Unless you're trying to hide on a college campus, find something that blends in without looking military or tactical, and you'll be at a better position. Even if that means that you put that thing that blends in inside of something that looks like trash. That's a good point. Another thing that I heard recently, and I mentioned just a few minutes earlier, possibly even in your home, just to guard it against people that traverse your home, or let's just say there's somebody who wants to rob your place or whatever. And if you want to keep some gear in your vehicle that you would not be taking with you all the time, but you want to have it there, whether you're traveling or whatever, again, apply what Tyler's saying here and camouflage that gear. Like for instance, okay, let's just say you have a pretty awesome, heavy everyday carry or get home bag and you're traveling. If you put that really nice looking bag with some kit and some bungee cords on the outside, like my pack has, and you just put that in your vehicle, it looks like something of value. But if you put it in a beat up bin or a tote and you mark that. Mark it stinky diapers or dog poo trash. (laughs) Grandma's photos or something like that, right? It's way less attracted. I heard somebody say, mark it family photos, (laughs) right? Who wants to look at somebody's family photos? So it's a good idea to camo your gear, man. Sometimes what I'll do too, especially if we're traveling and it's kind of cluttered in the vehicle anyway, I just want to hide my stuff in the noise of the vehicle. So even just taking like your backup jacket, which, you know, it's just like your emergency jacket. So it's not like the nicest thing in the world and your pack or something of value is on the floor in the hatch area. Just throw that over top of it. Sometimes I'll just take a wool blanket and just like throw it messy over stuff. And that just breaks it up and it doesn't make that stand out any more than anything else in your vehicle. Make sense? So I have a couple of education paths. Some of it was psychology, some of it was sociology, network engineering, military intelligence, and law enforcement. So the most recent education I got was a criminal justice degree. And one thing that we study is how to deter and deflect criminal behavior. And you have to look at what type of criminal is trying to attack you or victimize you. And the basic level is target of opportunity. Basically, I wasn't going to steal something, but it's right there. So I'll just break this window and take it. Or I need 20 bucks and how I get the 20 bucks doesn't matter. There's your really expensive backpack. I'll just break it and take it. So the very lowest level of criminal deterrence that you can do is keep things out of sight and keep your doors locked. So the lowest level of criminals that aren't willing to break windows to get it, they won't do it. The next level is they're focused or dedicated, meaning I won't break into this car unless it has an iPad, but if it has an iPad, I'm going to tear the car apart until I get it. So again, keeping it out of sight, keeping it locked up, making it look like something else is one of the best things that you can do 
to deter that type of criminal. In places like San Francisco right now, people will leave the backs of their cars open and the seats down to show, hey, look, stop breaking my windows. I don't have anything in the back seat because crime has gotten out of hand there. So with that in mind, some of the best places that you can hide thing is right in, in plain sight, right? Like if you have a baby bag and a diaper and you put your cell phone inside of a diaper and leave that folded over diaper right there in the middle of the beach, no one's going to touch it because why are they going to open up a folded over shut up diaper? Because most of them have poop in them. So if you've got a way to deter it by making it look like something other than what it is, that's the first step. Now, that only deters most criminals. Understanding that lets you know that you have to take further steps to deter the rest of the criminals. So yeah, there's some massive value in getting out of sight, out of mind. If they can't see it, it's not there. Hiding it in a way that it's not accessible or putting it right in plain sight, but making it looking like something that it isn't is really valuable. During World War II, the Germans would come to Poland and try to take food. And they would basically have their stash that was hidden and then their stash that was kind of hidden. So when the Germans came and they said, where's your food? They're like, please, all we have is this. And then they would press harder and say, okay, here's our stash. And their stash might be like a couple of cans of corn or whatever. Well, they didn't give you, they give you the drop wallet. They didn't give you the actual stash of food. So as an example, to take that idea to a third world country, if you have two wallets, one of them that you keep in a very non-accessible location, another one that you keep in your right back pocket. And it has just maybe like 20 bucks in it and some old cards that you don't need. They'll do the same thing with cell phones. So when someone robs them, they give them their drop wallet and they give them their old broken flip phone. And then they're like, you got my phone, what else do you want? And then the criminal leaves. Although they didn't get your real wallet, they didn't get your real cell phone. So there's ways to deter that and it's just, sleight of hand and misdirection and it's a really valuable tactic especially if you've got someone that's nervous and trying to commit a really quick crime all right so dude we are almost out of time so what we're going to do is wrap this up fairly quick i just want to mention one brand they're not ultralight backpacks but they are designed to be what we would call today like a gray man backpack that would be the maxpedition prepared citizen line we've got some of those they're fantastic. They're made just to look like a Jansport or a mid-level commuter's backpack. But they have the tactical features built in where you can't see them. I love stuff like that. Yeah. Do you have anything like that? So Tactical Taylor and Grey Ghost will make some covert lines, some Grey Man lines. Vertex, I know the company. They don't sponsor me or anything. I just have some of their bags and they're amazing. Those are good kits to use. Converting something that you like by just adding Velcro to the inside is another good way to do this. That's all that these bags are, is they're an REI bag with some Velcro on the inside so that you can add a holster or just keep stuff stable. My IFAC that I have is in a plastic bag and I put two chunks of Velcro on it so I can move it from bag to bag because they all have Velcro on the inside. Gray Ghost has a whole line of this stuff. Cool. I do know that the Maxpedition line, I think I've mentioned them before, that they always try to build in a pouch for any firearms, personal firearms that you have. And they have a panel in there where you could have a holster that has Velcro on it and it'll hold your firearm and your ammo. I think they actually sell the holsters and they sell 
the ammo pouches that have Velcro too, so they make it sort of kind of convenient. I have a Maxpedition green bag I've had for probably 15 years. I have a little pile of bags so I can just grab what I want when I need to go. So yeah, they're definitely robust and high quality. So recently, Survival Dispatch that I work with, we're in the process of creating an EDC bag by the pros, if you will. So something that you can just buy and go. The problem is there's a lot of pre-built bags and like the Walmart bags, and they've got 99 band-aids and not one tourniquet. They're just kind of garbage. Right. And the band-aids don't stick anyway. Yeah. I mean, you'd be better off to just buy some MyMedic.us stuff and convert it over, but I don't work for them either. <laughs> it's just <laughs> people that have kit that I like. We just know what works. Yeah, I know what I bought and I know what I spent my money on. So yeah, Survival Dispatch, the main producers, the main content creators, including myself, are in the process of building EDC and bug out bags that you can use that are going to meet all the criteria of fire, water, shelter, food, communication, security, and all that stuff. So if you go to gear.survivaldispatch.com, you'll eventually see that hopefully in the next month or two, once we get it all up and running. And I'm certain you also have links like this as well, right? Yep. This is all good stuff, dude. So I still have what to put in a bug out bag. We have talked about a lot of this, but if you don't mind, I'd love to come back at some point and you and I can just share specifically some of the core elements that we think that people ought to be considering putting in their bug out bags. What do you think? Totally game. We'll have to do another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll also talk about the survival rule of threes. Craig and I have talked about that quite a bit in the past. A lot of people don't understand how to apply it. It's really easy once you get how it works. So we'll cover that stuff next time. How about some takeaways from this podcast? Takeaways. Look like a homeless person. Bring the kit. Don't leave it where people can see it and get training. Oh, and do some PT. If you're not running, you're not right. Do you still run in sandals, dude? Yeah. The other reason I'm not doing it right now is because there's like six inches of snow on the ground. <laughs> on the last podcast, we talked about me finding some students over 12 hours of rain. I had Luna sandals on the whole time. I was fine. A lot of people don't realize how warm your feet are when you're not losing heat through convective heat loss because you've got sandals on instead of touching the ground. So if you're moving, like you can stay in some really nasty weather with sandals on and be just fine simply because your feet aren't touching the ground. I'm not saying do that all the time. I'm saying <laughs> you're way better than you think. I'll even shamelessly plug them. Luna sandals. I have the Origin 2s. I prefer those over any other running shoe every day of the week. I can run right through the river, come out on the backside, dry off, go home and shower, never even take my sandals off the whole day. Like I love them. They're awesome. You're an amazing person, man. Hey, I really appreciate you coming on. Before you go, do you want to just let people know how they can find you online? So two main places, TJAC Survival, which is T-J-A-C-K Survival, both tjacksurvival.com, TJAC Survival on YouTube, Instagram, whatever, and Survival Dispatch. I'm a contributor of multiple people, survivaldispatch.com, Survival Dispatch on Instagram, Survival Dispatch on YouTube. Uh, if you see a video that I made and you leave a comment, I will come and talk to you until that gets overwhelming. Then I have to slow down. But yeah, Survival <laughs> Dispatch, T-Jack Survival, those are the two main places. You want to go do a trip on the desert with me, hit me up on tjacksurvival.com and we'll go starve to death for a week, eat rabbits and use sagebrush to wipe our bums. <laughs>
But you will always have your spice kit. Yeah, I can have my spice kit, man. Every good survivalist brings spices to put on the meat. <laughs> Mr. Tyler White. Thanks, bro. Appreciate you. It was awesome. Now, before we head out of here, I'd like you to do two things to help us help others learn how to be prepared now before disaster strikes. First, please pay it forward by sharing our family-friendly content with the ones you love on social media. And then go give us a five-star rating and honest review wherever you listen to this podcast. And second, go over to our mothership, ultimatesurvivaltips.com and check it out. There's a lot of free content like our weekly survival EMAG newsletter, blog, news articles, and a lot more. And while you're there, check out my MSK1 knives, all the everyday carry survival gear that I designed for you and the ones you love. And while you're there, don't forget to click on the podcast tab to get the show notes PDF with links to the things we discussed today. And don't forget to use code SURVIVALSHOW25 for 25% off our award-winning MSK1 knives and Amazon best-selling Tiny Survival and First Aid Guides for the next week over at UltimateSurvivalTips.com. All right, everybody, I think that's about it. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show podcast. Until then, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.